0: You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Only if you're here, if you're online, you still gotta stay standing. Good morning, everybody. In case you missed the introductions today, my name is Elliot, I'm the student minister. I'm super excited to be here. Nay, I would say I'm pumped to be here this morning with all of your wonderful faces and all of your wonderful screen names. I'm excited and I'm excited that you're here with me. I wanna ask you kind of maybe a bizarre question to begin. That's kind of what I do, that's sort of my thing. What is your favorite kind of puzzle? And I know not everybody is as neurotic as me and has like a favorite variety of puzzle, but I wanna give you guys just a second, talk amongst yourselves and see if you can name the favorite kind of puzzle that you have in your head, in your heart. Go ahead, talk amongst yourselves. You guys weren't as into that question as I thought you were gonna be. And that's okay, I know. It's a special type of nerd who needs, who has like a favorite kind of puzzle. I got a few here. You know, you got your good old classic puzzle with all the like, you know, weird shapes that my son calls like bodies. Cause they kind of sometimes look like they got a head and arms and feet. He's, he's, he's something awesome just like me. Uh, this one is like a bunch of different kinds of candy. I think my mother-in-law gave it to me. I'm not hundred percent sure, but. It was my mom. Sorry, mom. That was my bad there. Uh, That's embarrassing. (laughs) Anyway, but there's other kinds of puzzles, right? I got like some games that I like to keep in my office, like little puzzly things that you can rearrange and keep you from being too, too bored. I like, one of my favorite kinds of puzzles is like programming puzzles, computer programming puzzles, because it's like, so, you could go so many different ways with it. I've got like this task that I want a computer or computers to accomplish. And I've got to figure out what pieces I have that might be able to make that happen and and how they can all fit together to make it work. And I've got even like, these are 2600, the hacker quarterly. I've got almost every issue dating all the way back to 2011 because I'm that big of a nerd. And my wife can definitely vouch for that anytime you want, but I love puzzles. Another favorite um, analog style puzzle are those uh, spot the difference puzzles, right? You got two pictures and you gotta figure out which which one has the differences and circle them and all that stuff. Now, I wanna share one with you guys. And if you've seen this before, don't spoil it for anybody else. Go ahead and hit that picture, Krishna. See if you can, I know it's kind of small, sorry. See if you can spot the differences between these two pictures. If you're online, put it in the chat. Go ahead, let us know what the differences are that you see. That image was in the Baltimore Sun almost exactly a year ago, last April, as everybody is beginning to like quarantine, self-isolate, all that stuff. And the Baltimore Sun is trying to like give people something to do at home. Right? Like the good journalists they are, and give people something to occupy their time and their minds. The problem is, this puzzle drove the internet crazy. Because, I don't know if you've noticed it yet, there are no differences. (laughs) Identical pictures, and they had to correct it the next day. But I think those puzzles are so fun. And I like to think of myself, as pretty good at them. And I've got actually a life hack if you wanna improve yourself, your own like skill with these. You take, you remember those 90s books? The like magic eye, cross your eyes and figure out what is popping out at the page. You do that with these, eventually like the two images become three and the one in the middle is an overlap of the others. And you can pretty quickly tell what is different from the others. And I'm gonna throw up if I keep doing this. Anyway, I love puzzles. And I like those catch the difference ones especially. And I think that's partially because humanity is good at catching differences between things, right? We're good at spotting the difference between one image and another or spotting something that doesn't quite seem normal, that doesn't quite belong where we see it or like something might be dangerous. We're good at spotting those differences. And it's one of the things, one of the many things that sets us apart from the rest of the animals, that we can spot those differences and we can conceptualize the differences. We can uh, put into words what the differences are and describe them and think about them outside of just making an observation. But I think sometimes we take it a little too far And we start to spot the differences between people. And we begin before long to differentiate between people and set them into different groups. Us, them, them, in some pretty destructive ways sometimes. And that's actually what this series is all about. The Doug started last week. It's called Jesus and the Marginalized. And we're looking at a few different stories where Jesus interacted with people and, and groups of people in the gospel of Luke, where those people were seen as outsiders through whatever reason, for whatever purposes, those people were on the fringe of society. And we're looking at how Jesus talks to them, how Jesus deals with them. Thank you, Phil how Jesus uh, interacts with them and what we can learn for our own interactions in the world today. And it all goes back to Luke chapter 19. Jesus says, these are his words, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. That was what Jesus was here for. Not just the people who think they got it all together, not just the people who belong to the right click who, who, who seem to, to fit in with all the other people, but Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost, the people who need his saving. It'd be really hard to do that if he just stuck to the, the us that he was a part of. And what really matters as we interact with people, as we deal with the world and the people that we may disagree with, is how do we respond to the differences of opinion that we face each day, each week. What we want to do through this series is use Jesus as kind of a template, an example that we can look at his behavior, his interactions, and apply them to our own lives and our own behaviors. So, A few weeks ago, there's a pastor in England who who got himself sort of in the middle of a controversy, not really intending for anything. He and his church set up a a vaccination clinic to try and help encourage and support and provide access to the vaccine against COVID-19 for the people who may not have as easily accessible medical care, or maybe who don't trust entirely the medical care system and some politician visited the church and was excited about it and stuff. But then some accusations started, thrown, started being thrown around that this church and this pastor were uh, anti-LGBTQ and had some behaviors and practices that were not very friendly to that community. And I love the way he responded when, they, when asked about this. How do you respond to people who claim you're anti-LGBTQ? He said, it is incompatible with being a true follower of Jesus Christ, to be anti-anyone. The cross reminds us that we all need Jesus. And I love that. So often we find ourselves looking at somebody as other, right? Seeing people or groups of people as fundamentally, decisively different from ourselves, usually in a negative way. But the the quote that pastor said, the message of Jesus, the example he shows us, the the pattern, the template, the the things we see in the gospels of Jesus interacting with people who are on the outside of society, we can't be anti-anyone if we want to follow his example. And we're spending this whole year trying to focus, trying to seek Christ, trying to, to recognize his lifestyle and see how we can embrace it, how we can live as, live following his example. It's incompatible to be anti-anyone if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus exemplifies that all over the gospels, all over Luke. And what we're looking at today is a story where he does just that. So we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. We'll have the verses on the screen. If you're online, there's a tab next to the chat tab that you can use for the Bible. Luke seven is where we're gonna be. And what what I wanna do with us today, with our time, is to, to walk through the story, take a couple of steps through it, and then see if we can find a template or example or a pattern that emerges in the way Jesus interacts with this particular person. It's the story of him healing uh, the, centur- the centurion's slave. And like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll be in Luke 7. The story is also in Matthew chapter 8, I believe. And there's a couple of differences in the way Matthew and Luke tell the story. And the basics of it is that Matthew is telling kind of a summary. Luke is given a more detailed account. So what we're going to do is start in Luke chapter seven, verse one. Immediately after, nope, that's, that's not what that says. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. Okay, we'll pause there because I can't do anything fast. And since we don't have a second service, I got you guys for as long as I want. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't panic. So after Jesus says these words, he goes to Capernaum. What words are we talking about? Luke and Matthew both record what Luke, Matthew we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Some of his like greatest hits of teaching are recorded in the preceding chapters from chapter seven. So Jesus has said like, smash hit, all-star all star sermon to these people, and now he's on his way to Capernaum. And the Greek word that says he finished teaching or he completed teaching, depends on what your translation is, sort of has the connotation of fulfillment, that he completed and fulfilled all of his teaching, like he has done it, it is finished, it's over, he has taught the whole thing that he needs to teach, So like he has given the lessons that he wants to give, and now he is ready to move into a different phase of his ministry. And so he goes to Capernaum. And Capernaum, for most of Jesus's public ministry, was sort of like home base. In fact, Luke chapter four, we read, then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. There too, the people were amazed at his teaching for he spoke with authority. So in Capernaum, Jesus finds like supportive community, uh, receptive attitudes and people and hearts. And he stays there for a while. That's sort of like his base of operations where he can um, spread out from and, and branch out from. And he gets a lot of his disciples from the Capernaum area. Now, I've said Capernaum about a dozen times. And for many of us in this room who are maybe geographically challenged, that might not mean a whole lot. So I brought pictures, don't worry. Here's a, here's a map and on the far left, that little green pin you see is here, Wildwood Christian Church, that's us. We're famous, way to go. And on the far right, you'll see those orange pins. There's a cluster of them. That sort of gives you a spatial orientation of where we're going. But we're gonna zoom into that on the right and we got three things there. Down on the bottom is Jerusalem. That pins actually the Temple Mount. But Jerusalem is uh, Jerusalem. I think most people know Jerusalem's pretty significant. It's where Jesus was put to death. That is the, the, the capital of Israelite faith and society in the time of Jesus. Up there in the middle-ish is Nazareth. That's like Jesus' hometown. Spent most of his life there. He uh, he. His parents lived there, that's why they call him Jesus of Nazareth, if you've ever heard it described like that. And then the one that's like on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. So that's where Jesus is making his home base for most of his public ministry. And it says he taught at the synagogue every Sabbath day. And I brought pictures of that too. So we got two different ones. First, this is a synagogue in Capernaum that is made out of white limestone. Dates to about 400 AD, give or take. But if you go outside the, the synagogue, you see that black um, foundation? That dates to about 2000 years ago to the time of Jesus. And there's pretty solid evidence that that is likely to have been the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus actually taught in every Sunday. They call it like, what is it? Synagogue of Jesus. But you can see the different layers, the black basalt rock that's like local to the area. That's where Jesus's teaching took place in Capernaum. That's like his classroom or whatever. So Jesus is in Capernaum after telling the Sermon on the Mount, after giving some of his greatest teaching that exists. Let's keep reading in verse two. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. Okay, so we'll pause there again as well. These couple of verses uh, set the scene for our story, and the main thrust of the story, the focus of it, is around this centurion. He's got a sick slave, and he asks Jesus for help. So Rome at the—no, Israel at the time was occupied by Rome, and a lot of the Jewish folks uh, weren't too keen on Rome as a whole. It's like if Illinois decided, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and take over Missouri because— Why not? And then that, though, that occupying army is Rome in this situation. So the people did not have a great deal of affection or love or trust for the Roman uh, government. And this guy is a soldier in charge of soldiers in the army. He very much represents the oppressing force that's in the midst of their homeland. So we got to answer some questions right away. First of all, what the heck does Centurion mean? He was sort of, if you're familiar with today's US military, you've got this class of like non-commissioned officers that are kind of in between enlisted people and uh, commissioned officers. And they are sort of the, the middlemen in a way. If you ever talk to them and call them sir, they'll say, don't call me sir or ma'am. I work for a living, get it? Because they, anyway, the centurions had a reputation for being uh, really well, having a good reputation. They had a reputation for being, anyway, every time in the gospel or in contemporary literature, we meet centurions, they're highly regarded. Their character is pretty upright. They are viewed as upstanding, uh, loyal, good citizens of the Roman Empire. So this guy, like already, he's, he's kind of a likable guy, right? Now he's a centurion, and if we understand that a century is a hundred years, how many men do you think he might be in charge of? That's right, 80 Didn't see that coming, did you? Started as a hundred or so, and over time it kind of changed. It's sort of like when you go to Home Depot, you buy a two by four, right? At some point along the way in the milling process, it was two inches by four inches, but after some operations and drying and whatever else goes on, you really get a one and a half by three and a half rather than a two by four. Same kind of thing. A centurion started out as a hundred in charge of a hundred soldiers, but... Over time, that kind of shifted and changed. By the time Jesus was talking to this guy, it was right around 80. And he's got a slave who is sick to the point of death. Now, we got to deal with the whole slavery thing here. Yeah, the guy had enslaved persons working for him. Does that Just because it's in the story doesn't necessarily make it right, does it? There's so many things in the Bible, in stories in the Bible, in stories just in society where something is described just as it is rather than prescribed as it ought to be, right? So this guy was in a class that had slaves, a social class that had slaves, and that's just the reality of the situation. Your translation may say servant. Or bond servant, and bond servant is pretty close, kind of carries the idea that somebody has voluntarily entered this slave state to repay a debt or for a specific period of time. But the bottom line is this guy is working for the centurion and does not have his freedom. Doesn't make it a right thing, but it does reflect uh, what society was like. And he's a beloved slave, a highly valued slave, not just in a financial or monetary kind of way, but in a, in a familial kind of way. Like this was part of the family. This guy was part of the family. He was looked at with a high degree of affection from this centurion. Now, why does he send these middlemen to meet with Jesus? Right, he sends these Jewish elders to Jesus to ask to come and heal his slave. It's actually like a Jewish custom when something is of vital importance that you send like ambassadors or emissaries to communicate to the person that you're sending it to, presumably because you are preoccupied where you are with something of vital importance, right? So it's almost like Jesus, the centurion is leaning into Jesus's own customs and culture and saying like, He's Jewish, maybe he'll respond well if I send these Jewish elders. Now, the Jewish elders say a whole bunch of stuff, so let's get into that. This is verse 4. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. Remember that synagogue we showed you earlier? That's the one. That's the one we're talking about. It's right. Anyway. These Jewish elders are unusually big fans of this Roman officer. They don't have anything bad to say. They even say he is worthy to be helped. Your translation may say worthy, and that's a pretty good word to use there. They're saying he is worthy of this healing, of this help that he's asking for, for a couple of reasons. First, he loves the Jewish people, he says. They say, that could mean that he is what's known as a Godfearer, a, a Gentile person who has mostly converted to Judaism and, and practices some of their, their faiths and, and rituals and stuff up to circumcision, because, obviously. But we don't really know if that's the case. We don't know if he is actually a Godfearer or if he's just, you know, a good citizen towards his, his fellow people. They also say because he built the synagogue. It's common today for a politician to take up some kind of project solely for the purpose of, of the goodwill that the project will, will get them, right? Like they're building a dam only because they think it's gonna increase their votes next time around. That's not really what's happening here. The Greek has a a very clear idea that this guy was invested in the synagogue. It says he himself built the synagogue. So through his own personal finances or his own physical effort and exertion, he had some serious interest in this synagogue. And the Jewish elders are telling Jesus about that. It's not just some political duty. He was genuine with it. So verse six, let's see what Jesus has to say and do when he's given this request. So Jesus went with them, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed." I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. So Jesus, let's notice first, Jesus goes with these Jewish elders. No questions asked, no conversation, just guy needs healing. Okay, I'm on my way. But before they get to the house, the centurion stops him. And contrary to what the Jewish elders were saying, he's worthy of this help. Now he's saying, I am not worthy. I'm not even worthy to have an audience with you, Jesus. I'm not presuming that I get the right to have a conversation with you. I am not worthy. But he also, he's got a lot of humility and he also understands Jesus's authority. He gives this picture of his superiors giving him orders and him giving his soldiers orders. And he understands that just like the chain of command in the military can bring order and structure and discipline, Jesus's authority can bring order and structure and healing and fullness to a broken world he understands that and he's putting a lot of faith in Jesus's ability to exercise that authority. Now this is the fun part. So let's go verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, "I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel." And when the officers' friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. That's a pretty good end of the story, right? Way to go, Jesus. Jesus is amazed here. That only happens two times. This story, it's recorded both in Matthew and in Luke, that Jesus is amazed. And he's also amazed in Mark 6 at Nazareth's lack of faith. Jesus is saying to them, like, just because I'm the son of Mary and Joseph, like... You don't respect me, you don't have faith in what I'm doing. And he is amazed at the lack of faith that they demonstrate. Now, I don't know what you've done with your week, but I Googled who is the best chess player in the world, like you do, and I found this guy. His name is Magnus Carlsen. He's from Norway, I believe and he's been like the top ranked uh, chess grandmaster guru guy with the most points. I I don't know how it all works, but he's like the top chess player since 2011. Dude's pretty impressive. So imagine if I, your humble student minister, were to face Magnus in a chess competition, a chess tournament, I would not do well. We can, we can all agree on that. It's just not on my bucket list to happen. But if I somehow made him walk away from that tournament being just like blown away, mind blown at some new, unique chess strategy that I was able to fumble together, that's what this centurion has done for Jesus. He has amazed him with the faith that he demonstrates in Jesus. And Jesus even holds this centurion up as like uh, an example for the crowd to follow. And I love the way the message writes this. The message is a paraphrase of, of the Bible. And he sa- and it's written, uh, taken aback, Jesus addressed the accompanying crowd. I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust anywhere in Israel, the very people who are supposed to know about God and how he works. I love the way that's phrased. The Israelites are supposed to know about God. They're supposed to be anticipating this Messiah that's going to come and show them all about how to live, how to be the people of God. Yet even in that nation, even in that context, he hasn't seen the kind of simple faith that this guy can demonstrate. So let's quickly take a look at some at, at what Jesus does and doesn't do and see if we can kind of recognize a template that we could maybe filter some of our own actions and behaviors and thoughts and emotions through. First thing Jesus does is he includes this gentile. He is ready and willing to go talk to this Gentile and be with him and meet with him and have an interaction with him, no questions asked. He doesn't have to like screen, well, let's see, are you actually having faith in Yahweh or are you just trying to get a magic trick or nothing? He just is ready to include the Gentile in this case. Second thing he does, Jesus serves him. He he recognizes that there is a need this guy has and that he can help. He can uh, do something tangible to actually help this person. He sees how he can help and he does what he's asked to do. The third thing he does is Jesus values this Gentile. Jesus is impressed by him. He sees value in him solely on the basis of his faith. He sees value based on his actions, not based on his heritage or what, he, what church he goes to, what synagogue, whatever. He sees value in his faith. And he uses him as an example. And as I think of the way that Jesus interacts with this guy, and I think about the way that I interact with people and maybe the way that you interact with people around you, I think so many of those relationships and those interactions with others could be much more beneficial for everybody if I were to take the lead of Jesus on what to do. To include them in my life. To include and let them share their perspective and their thoughts and their experiences with me rather than just looking at the world through my own lenses. Or if I served them without a catch and expect, or expecting anything in return. Or if I found value in them, even if nothing changed in their life, even if they still made mistakes, even if they still hurt me sometimes, if I could find the value that they do bring to this world and to my life. So that's what Jesus does. Let's look at some of the things that Jesus doesn't do. And if I may step on your toes briefly, I would suspect that for many of us in this room, this is probably where we need to look at Jesus pretty honestly for ourselves. First thing Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't argue with him. He doesn't have a fight or try to convince him he's right. They, he doesn't focus on the different beliefs that they have. He doesn't try to convince him or anything or prove him wrong about something. He doesn't argue with the Gentile. He just goes. He goes and he includes. He's not trying to be the winner here or test what his faith is really in. If he understands Jesus, who Jesus actually is or if he just is seeing an opportunity, he doesn't argue. Second thing he doesn't do is he doesn't refuse to help. Even though they have different cultures, even though they have different backgrounds, even though they have different opinions, he still helps. He still sees a need that he can help, and he does it. The last thing he doesn't do is he doesn't punish. He doesn't see this as an opportunity to teach that Gentile a lesson or show him how he brought this misfortune on himself. He doesn't say, well, you shouldn't have slaves, so you're out of luck, man. He doesn't argue or refuse to help or punish. He just sees a person in need and does what needs to be done. Now, if I came to you with my hand wrapped in a very bloody rag and said, hey, I was working on my table saw, I need you to take me to the hospital right now that would not be the time to say, hey, you should have been more careful, right? Say, hey, you should use your writhing knife next time or your splitter, like your fingers must've been too close. Like, sure, maybe there's a time for that. I suspect I would have already learned that lesson very well in the preceding moments, but right now I just need to drive to the hospital. That's a silly example, right? But, I've been, a, I've been pretty honest with you guys before about my ADHD. And sometimes this is exactly how it feels like. My wife shared this meme with me. I'll read it for you. My ADHD is making it impossible to do schoolwork. Like, ah, uh, help. And somebody's coming in, I understand. I'm forgetful too sometimes, just try harder. High five. And then oh, away I go. And that's a funny and also terrifyingly accurate description of what I feel pretty frequently. If I were to be a little bit more honest, a little bit transparent, most of the time I, I kind of uh, write off my ADHD as sort of like this funny, quirky little, ah, oh, I can't concentrate, I lost my keys again kind of thing. But there, are, there have been times in my life, there have been times this week, there have been times in the past 24 hours where my ADHD and the baggage that comes along with it has felt so debilitating and oppressive. And I find myself just in tears. I find myself a wreck. I find myself, I've lost the ability to tread water and I can no longer stay above. And that's not the time to say you should just focus harder. You should just try harder, right? When I'm asking somebody for help, it's because I'm already at that like breaking point. And Jesus sees this Gentile, this person who has different beliefs, different backgrounds, different all kinds of stuff, and doesn't use it as an opportunity for a gotcha, but instead he helps. And as I think about the interaction that Jesus has with his, with this Gentile and the interactions that I have with people around me, I think so many of them could be better, more beneficial if I followed Jesus's cue on what not to do, not to argue, not to refuse to help somebody solely based on the background or culture that they have, not to punish not to give a to- and I told you so. When somebody is hurting, the bottom line is this: that Jesus shows us how to be gracious as we interact with the world. To be to to see the value, to see the 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 faith, the the beauty that other people can bring to our lives, even if we disagree with them, even if we have a different faith even if we have a different background. So the question I think for all of us is, who are the Gentiles for you? Who are the people that you instinctively see as other? Who are the people that you're more likely to turn away from because you I just don't want to deal? Maybe for in, in, in Jesus' times, it was pretty distinctively uh, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, as far as, as far as the Jews were concerned, that everybody outside of Judaism was a Gentile. And maybe that's the same for you. Maybe it's, it's non-Christians and Christians. Maybe it's Muslims or atheists or Buddhists or fill in the blank. Someone from a different denomination, I don't know. <sighs> or maybe it's people who come from a different socioeconomic economic Status. People on the opposite side of the political aisle. We all have somebody that we divide against into us versus them. What would it look like for you to put Jesus' template of, of love and grace and graciousness into practice with those interactions? Okay. Normally, all the time. I give you guys some homework. These are like quick things that you can do today, right now, this week, maybe not right now, but we'll see, that, that that can apply this template, this example into your interactions. The first thing is find someone to include. Sometimes we just need the perspective, the experience, the stories that other people can bring into our life to grow our perspective, to grow our, our mind, our Own experiences. Find somebody to include in your life to help your understanding grow. Second, find commonalities instead of differences. We could go on and on and on about the differences that even in this room we have between each other. This week, try and focus on the things we have in common more than the things that differentiate us. And last, find Jesus's grace to share with others. This is all rooted in the idea that Jesus gives us grace and love to begin with. And if you don't have that grace that is is nourishing your heart, that is changing everything for you, then this other stuff is not sustainable. In essence, we are taking the grace that Jesus has given us and making it more abundant in this world. That's what we're aiming to do. And so if you wanna see more of that grace in the world, maybe the first step that you need to take is getting that grace into your heart first. So we're gonna have one more song. Phil's gonna come up and, uh, and we're gonna sing. It's, another, it's part of a song that we already sung, but I wanna challenge all of us, my, me included. During the next few minutes, To focus on how Jesus interacted with this Gentile, how he interacted with the people around him who were outcasts, who are on the fringe of society, and how we can take that example and apply it to the relationships and the interactions that we have on a daily basis. And if you need to talk or pray through some of that, I'll be up here at the front and during the song, you can come up and I would be so happy to talk about uh, Jesus's grace in your life and maybe what your next steps might be. And you can, during this time, stand, sit, it's up to you as we pause and think about how Jesus has changed us and is calling us to change the way we interact with others. So I'll pray and then, uh, then we'll sing another song. God, thank you for today and for the time that we have uh, to, to, to look at your word and look at the way that you are active in this world. Help us during this time to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with you. Father, to, to see how we can share and spread your grace to the people uh, in our lives. Father, we love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.